Good morning. My name is Donald. I'm one of the pastors here at First Alliance, and uh, what a privilege it is to stand before you once again. Um, when people ask me if I am preaching today, even though I may be within a half hour of the beginning of worship service, I respond by saying, the Lord willing. I do not take this for granted. It is by God's mercy and grace that I'm able to even come into this building, let alone stand before you and declare his word to be holy, true, and faithful, which it is. Thank you for giving me a hearing and my prayer as I listen to the prayer of our worship leader is that if knowing Jesus is not part of your story already, that before this day ends, before this service ends, that Jesus will be a part of your story. And may I say, may he become your story. For it is in him that we have access to God the Father. And I thank God for sending his son Jesus. We've been studying from the book of Ephesians and we have been hearing some really, really great teaching from this letter which Paul wrote to the saints at Ephesus. We're going to continue today to study from chapter 2 of the letter, verses 1 through 10. The subject of our lesson is out of the graveyard. The focus is the sovereignty of redemption. Let me say that again. The, folk, the subject is out of the graveyard, but the focus is the sovereignty of God's redemption. That is the sovereignty of God in our redemption, the mercy and grace of God in our redemption, the power of God in our redemption, the glory of God in our redemption. Will you pray with me? Lord God, how grateful we are for your great love for us and the provisions you've made for our lives, not just here, but for all of eternity. And those provisions are wrapped up in your son, Jesus. And so we thank you for Jesus, whom you sent out of eternity into the time, space, and history of mankind as a man so that he would die in man's place to redeem man, to redeem me, to redeem us from the sins that we've committed against you. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege of knowing that. Thank you for all that already know that. And Lord, our prayer is that Anyone in this place who does not already know and understand that, that before they leave this place today, that your spirit will have opened up their hearts to see Jesus for who he is and to know that he is the only hope for the world, that he is the hope for their eternal well-being. And may you be glorified in all that is spoken and all that you choose to do in us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. This is just one more lesson that demonstrates 
the wide gulf that stands between mere religion and having a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we look at this passage and we see, as we look at this, we see the, the, the sovereignty of God in our redemption and how utterly necessary it is that we recognize and, uh, that God is completely and absolutely sovereign in your salvation. He's sovereign in mine and he's sovereign in your salvation. And we begin by remembering and focusing upon what the, the Apostle Paul has said to the saints at Ephesus. He's already gone in chapter 1 and talking about the marvelous things that God has done for us. All according to the good pleasure of his own will. And then he says, and you were dead. So we need to understand who we are and who we were in, in relationship to where we now are in Christ Jesus. None of this happened because of anything that we did. As for you, says the text, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the rule of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. The entire lesson which the Bible calls Ephesians is addressed to people who have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter one deals with what God has done for them. Chapter two begins with a bold statement of our condition before salvation. We were dead. The easy to read version says it this way, in the past, you were spiritually dead because of your sins and the things you did against God. Yes, in the past, you, your lives were full of those sins. You lived in the way the world lives, following the ruler of the evil powers over the earth. That same spirit is now working in those who refuse to obey God. God does not waste words. I am very guilty of wasting words, but anything you see in the Bible, we see that God has placed it there for his own purpose. Now I'm amazed when I hear someone who professes to be a Christ follower say that all religions lead to God. I could expect someone who does not claim to know Jesus say something like that, but, but, but how can someone who really knows Jesus say that all, or claim to know Jesus, may I say, that all religions lead to God. How can that be when Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father but by me. Then if all religions, then you'd have to exclude Christianity. You'd have to exclude the Lord Jesus Christ who declared that he is the only way. We forget that our sinfulness is first of all a condition and then a matter of our deeds. We were born that way. So Jesus didn't die to turn bad people into good people. He died to give dead people life. Yeah. Apostle Paul uses the word dead to show the spiritual condition of anyone who is without Christ. This text gives us an understanding that salvation is not at all like what is referred to as the semi-Pelagian idea of salvation where there is an acknowledgement that God's grace is necessary, but also says we must work with God in order for our salvation to occur. 
occur. This teaching comes from a theologian named Pelagius, who lived during the latter part of the fourth century and the earlier part of the fifth century. His combination of grace plus work salvation was developed because, according to the Encyclopedia Britannica, he felt that the teaching of grace gave people license to sin. Far be it from that. But this is what happens when we begin to think of our own morality, our own definition of morality, and place that alongside of what the Word of God says. We superimpose, in reality, our morality upon Scripture. Romans eleven six, 6, the Apostle Paul says, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace is no longer grace. Grace and works are diametrically opposed to one another when it comes to being saved. If it is by grace, then it is no more of works, otherwise grace and works. You see, in God's divine reckoning, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, plus nothing. One can never work his way into being born again. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. This semi-Pelagian view of salvation is like a drowning man splashing in the water and Jesus comes along and throws him a lifeline to catch and pull you to safety. What the Apostle Paul describes suggests nothing of the sort, not even remotely. Dead people have absolutely no power to do anything for themselves. In order for salvation to occur, Jesus has to get out of the boat and dive down into the bottom of the water to pick up your lifeless body, bring you back into the boat, and breathe his life into you. That is salvation. Now, I, you know, I, I don't preach for, for, for amens. I, I really don't. But I tell you what, when you're silent on something like that, I begin, do you really understand what I'm saying? A life, you're, you're flashing around in the water, and Jesus throws you a, a life raft and pulls you in. No, you were dead, says the Apostle Paul. When you see images of people in the hospital and the machine hooked up to them uh, shows a flat line, there's no power within that individual to reach out and receive anything that would give them life. If the defibrillator doesn't do its job, then the order is given to record the hour and minute of death. The one lying in the bed doesn't even have the ability to cry out, say, wait, 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 wait a minute, I'm not dead, just try that defibrillator one more time. They can't even appeal to the ruling of the death notice. They can't do anything. Dead people hear nothing, see nothing, do nothing. This is the condition of anyone who is not in Christ. In this epistle, the Ephesians, to the Ephesians, who uh, are now saints, they were previously dead in their trespasses and sin, and the primary definition of death is separation. Physical death occurs when the spirit and the soul of an individual leaves the body. Spiritual death is when a person may be very well physically alive, 
but has no relationship with the God of the universe. Eternal death happens is when one dies physically with having a relationship with the God of the universe, which, by the way, comes only way through the Lord Jesus Christ, goes into eternal state, and that is called eternal death. It saddens me when I, we were talking about a friend of ours who passed very recently, and my wife shared with someone, and this one says that, well, I'm going to pray for him. That's, and she was very earnest. I don't laugh at that. But why, how can you pray for a dead person to receive Jesus? They're already gone. Paul is talking about our spiritual death in this particular case, the fact that we were spiritually dead. Please understand that Paul is not saying that a person who does not have a relationship with the Lord can't do any good things. No, that's not what he's saying. What he is talking about, and I say it dogmatically, emphatically, and without apology, that he's saying that when it comes to our salvation, a person cannot do anything for himself to give himself saved. The work is the sovereign work of God. So we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Which brings us to my second point of emphasis, which is the mercy and grace of God in our redemption. Verse 4 says, But God, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together. Who made us alive? God. With Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That three-letter conjunction, but. It sets the rich mercy of God over against our condition of being dead, which involves our sins. It sets the grace of God over against our evil and our deserving the wrath of God. See, a lot of people don't even think that they deserve God's wrath. This is why people are willing to change the song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a rich like me. Uh, some people have changed that, that song, and, and some have added one word instead of saved a rich like me, saved a soul like me. They're not willing to acknowledge that, yes, we were wretches. It sets our being made alive in Christ over against our being dead in trespasses and sins. It sets our being seated with Christ Jesus in the heavenly places against our former walking after the world, the flesh and the devil. And all of this happened while we were spiritually dead. God did it all for us. May I remind you once more, dead people hear nothing. Dead people see nothing. Dead people do nothing. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father which sent me draws him. John 6, 44. 
which brings to the next, next point of emphasis, the power of God over our redemption. It says in verse 6, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We have been raised and seated with Christ. We have been raised, we have been seated with Christ. Do you understand what I'm saying? We're already there. I know that physically I'm standing right here. But in the mind of God, I'm already seated with Christ Jesus. I don't know how many of you ever saw the movie Hidden Figures. In that movie, Astro, after astronaut John Glenn made a successful space flight and returned to Earth, Al Harrison, the head of NASA operations, asked Katherine Johnson, so you think we'll get to the moon? Her response was, we're already there, sir. Their words were based on a dream. However, the word of God speaks of reality. Everything regarding our salvation is wrapped up and fixed in Jesus Christ. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. No one will ever stretch, uh, snatch them out of my hands. I give them eternal life. We do not give ourselves, we do not work our way into eternal life. Jesus gives us eternal life. He says in John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come to judgment, but has already passed out of death into life. And after conquering sin and death, Jesus rose up. And the word says he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. In the mind of God, as I said a moment ago, everything is already fixed regarding our eternal well-being. And he wants us to live in the assurance that we are saved, safe, and secure in Christ and in Christ alone. Question. Uh, anyone who has raised children, you know that one of the things that toddlers are known for is why. Well, I want you to sit still. Why? Well, don't do that. Why? And so the question that we need to ask, we need to be just like those toddlers. Why would God do that for us? Why would he be so good to us? If we have sinned terribly, if we've done anything against him, why would he be so good to us? Well, this brings us to the next point of emphasis, the glory of God in our redemption. The letter begins with praise. God's grace is an aspect of his glory. Uh, the praise of glory, uh, of the glory of God's grace is very prominent in chapter 1. In fact, chapter 1 and 2 are one great celebration of God's grace bestowed upon us. So Paul actually says, he says, blessed be. Uh, by the way, that word blessed is from the Greek word eulogetos, 
uh, it's from our English word, uh, it, it's from the word from which we get our English word, eulogy. And so I recently used the same text, and my subject was the eulogy of God. Eulogy is when you are speaking well of. Now, when we talk of God blessing us, we talk about God doing good to us and for us. But when we talk about blessing God, we talk about speaking well of God and speaking his praises. And so chapters 1 and 2 are really one big celebration which the Apostle Paul calls us to, to glory, to magnify the grace of God. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love, he is praising God for us, for what he has done for us. Why would God do this? Chapter 2, verse 7, please, please come with me to that. So that in the ages to come, he, that is God, might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is the praise of the glory of his grace that Paul presents to us in chapter 1. The New Living Translation says it this way, so God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. He points to us. In other words, God is going to be glorified for all of eternity. And you will be on display. We will be on display showing the marvelous grace of God. For my name's sake, God says to the people of Israel, Psalm 57 and 11 says, Be exalted above the heavens, O God. Let your glory be above all the earth. Isaiah 48, 9 and 10 says concerning Israel, For the sake of my name I delay my wrath, and for my praise I restrain it for you, in order not to cut you off. Behold, I refine you, not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. Verse 11 says, For my own sake, for my own sake, God is emphatic when he says this, I will act, for how can my name be profaned, and my glory I will not give to another. What God does is for his own glory. It's just a matter that his mercy and his grace are aspects of his glory. Aren't you glad about that? Throughout the Bible, it is clearly evident that God is committed to his own glory. And what I've just read is probably the strongest statement in all scripture that demonstrates that fact. You and I are beneficiaries of the fact that God is committed to his own glory. The glory, the honor, and the happiness of God are more important than the welfare of any of his creatures. Now, be careful. Be careful to note what I did not say. I did not say that the welfare of God's creatures is unimportant to him. What I am saying is that the glory, the honor, and the happiness of God are infinitely more important. In fact, they're not worthy to be compared. But here's the wonderful thing that we need to understand. Our well-being, not just here and now, but our eternal well-being depends on the glory of God and the honor of his government and the manifestation of his perfections. Are you with me? When God shows his grace in saving a soul from eternal judgment, it is an aspect 
of his grace, which is an aspect of his glory. And so we should say like the angels, glory to God in the highest for what he has done. In Ephesians 1, 4, he says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, says verse 5, and he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. Notice this, according to the kind intention of his will. Verse 6 says, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which we freely bestowed upon us. Verse 7 says, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. Verse 12 of chapter 1 says, To the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. Verse 14, Who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. And so verse 7 says of chapter 2, So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For all of eternity, we praise God now. When we come together in this praise, we come not to be entertained. We come to praise God for his goodness. We come to praise God for sending his son out of eternity into the time, space, and history of mankind so that he, as man, could redeem man from the sins that we've committed against God. Only a good God would do that. And may I suggest that only an all-wise and all-powerful God could do that. This is why we reject mere religion. And we proclaim that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, ladies and gentlemen, salvation is God's gift to those who believe, not a reward for those who behave. The New Living Translation says this of verse 8, God saved you by his grace when you believe. And you can't take credit for this. It is a, a gift from God. It is God who wipes out our transgressions. And he does it for his own glory. What he did for the people of Israel, he did it not because they deserve it. They had no right to any good thing from him. And what the Lord did for you and for me and what he's doing now, he's doing it not because we deserve it, not even because we promise to be good, but because it is a manifestation of his own glory. Whatever he does in the life of a believer, it is not merely for our happiness, it is a matter of his own glory. It is to promote the, the glory of his perfections, to demonstrate the greatness of his mercy and compassion and to show his boundless and eternal love for you and for me. And therein lies our security. It is not because you decide to go to church. 
It is not because you decide to become a Sunday school teacher. It is not because you decide to become a preacher. It is not because you do any good thing, giving alms to the poor. It is because of God's mercy and grace, which are aspects of his own glory. He does it. And God is committed to his own glory. And because he's committed to his own glory, we too ought to be committed to God's glory. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift, it is the gift, it is the gift, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. When we strive to present our own good works as the basis in part or in total for our salvation, we do at least four terrible things against God. Number one, we act as if our sins are not as bad as the Bible says. Scripture says that there's none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Number two, we set aside what Christ has done and we place our own goodness before God as the basis of our acceptance. Number three, we demonstrate that we have a very low estimate of God's holiness. If it took only one act of disobedience in the first man, and it wasn't murder, it wasn't rape, it wasn't robbery, it was an act of disobedience by eating from a tree that God told him not to, if it caused only one act of disobedience to bring death into the human race, how would any individual, any individual who has walked in sin, who's steeped in sin, could ever think that they could do anything to earn God's favor. This is what God wants us to see. No, it is his goodness, it is his mercy, and it is his grace. Number four, we rob God of his glory. It brings about a story that I shared, uh, I think back in May at a, another service that we had. A story about two men, one named Donald and one named Joe. Donald was <laughs> dirt poor. And, and yeah, yeah, I, I, Donald has been very, very poor. Joe happened to be filthy rich. And somehow Donald and Joe got introduced to one another. But over the course of time, Joe fell in love with Donald. I mean, he just loved Donald. He just wanted to do things for Donald. Donald had nothing. And so Joe decided that he was going to buy Donald a house. And so he finds this house, and uh, the house costs $150,000. $150, and so he tells Donald, I'm going to buy you this house. And... Uh, Donald says, oh, no, 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 I, I don't see how you can do that. No, no, Donald, I'm able to do that, and I'm going to do this for you. Well, somebody had given Donald $5. And Donald decided that he wanted to contribute to the purchase of the house. And so Donald pleaded with Joe, Joe, please let me give my $5 to help pay for this. Donald said, no, no, I've got the Joe said, I got this, Donald. No, Donald insisted. Finally, Joe said, okay, I'll take your $5 and we'll put it toward the house. Well, 
Donald moves into the house. A couple of weeks later, Donald has some of his friends over, and they come in and say, my Donald, what a fine house. Uh, Donald says, yeah, Joe and I bought it. <laughs> Donald just robbed Joe of the privilege of saying he bought the house for Donald. When we present any little thing, thinking that God should accept us on the basis of whatever it be. We are robbing God of his glory, that which God says that he will have throughout all of eternity, turning to the magnificence of his mercy, the greatness of his love, the matchless grace that he's shown us in his son Jesus Christ by taking our sins and leaning them on him. We rob God. Yeah, $5, ridiculous, huh? But in reality, Donald really did help buy that house. So God would not allow, if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. If any little thing can add to our salvation, it ceases to be the grace of God for our salvation. Are you with me, ladies and gentlemen? And so again, salvation from God is his gift for those who believe, not a reward for those who behave. We will not rob God. Verse 10 of our text today says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we will walk in them. And because the matter of good works are going to be dealt with later on in our series. I'm not going to say much about this today. But I will say that we will say we are saved not by works, but we are saved for good works. Are you with me? There is a difference. We're not saved by what we do, but we are saved to do some doings for the glory of God. Are you with me? From the beginning of creation, work has been in God's plan for man. And so there is work for the people of God to do. And may I say to you, there's one thing that all of us should be involved in, and that is the work of making disciples for Jesus Christ. Somebody out there needs to know the truth that Jesus and Jesus only saves us from our sins and makes us acceptable to God, not by what we do, but by what he has done. And we simply place our faith in him and in him alone. And therein, we receive the gift of eternal life. And the second work that we're to do is the work of prayer. We're to pray that this church not just the, the staff, but everyone who's a part of this family would be about the business of sharing the Lord Jesus Christ with somebody in this world. The worship team may come up. We have this work to do. 
It is a good work that those of us who are in Christ have been called to do. And we do it not to be saved. We do it because we are already saved. We do it not to keep our salvation. We do it because we are celebrating the goodness of God. Because we're kept not by our own power. We're kept not by our own goodness. We're kept not by our own works. We're kept by nothing that we can do. We're kept completely by the power of God. And so for this, we should be grateful. Gratitude should mark the lives of those who name the name of Christ. And when we come into this place, that gratitude offers spill over under those that we greet in the lobby. When we come into this place, when we sing, when we raise our hands, when we listen to the word of God, when we leave out of here, gratitude ought to permeate our being because of what God has done for us because of his son, Jesus Christ, who left his throne in glory, who, as the word of God says, though he was rich, yet for our sake became poor, said we through his poverty might be made rich. It is gratitude.